Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 328, Athelred, the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Mackenzie, Drew, and Jenny for signing up already. The year 1002 was still 64 years away from 1066, but already the House of Normandy had begun a coup upon the Kingdom of England. The Norman dynasty only held a minor duchy, and actually they only held it for a fairly short amount of time, as it was only Duke Richard's great-grandfather, Rollo, who established it. And in that time, there have been multiple points where it looked like the family would be ousted from even those comparatively minor holdings. I mean, over the generations, the dynasty had faced off with numerous powerful enemies. Flanders, England, even the throne of France had beefed with the Dukes of Normandy. And with such formidable enemies, it wouldn't have been surprising if the Normans had faded into a footnote in history. But they didn't. And part of the reason for that is that they didn't just have powerful enemies. They also had powerful allies. Scandinavian allies and the dukes knew how to wield them. And I can think of no better indication of how well they exploited their connections with the Viking raiders than the fact that this minor duke, who was only about 22 years old, had managed to get the king of England to marry his sister. And he did it while openly defying a treaty that had been brokered by the pope himself. The House of Normandy was straight gangster. But the fact was that King Athelred was out of options. His kingdom was at the breaking point thanks to these Viking invasions, and his military strategies hadn't been working. So he had to do something to bring it all to an end. And this marriage was probably his best option. But it wasn't exactly a power move on his part, and a dynastic link to Normandy was forged by this marriage. Though that being said, it wasn't likely that there'd be a Norman sitting on the throne anytime soon. After all, Athelred had no less than six living sons born by his first Anglo-Saxon wife, Elf Gifu. You know, the real Elf Gifu, not this new one who is the queen formerly known as Emma. But as a result of their fecundity, if Athelred died, there was Athelstan, Egbert, Edmund, Edred, Edwig, and then even Edgar who were all ready to take up the mantle of rule. And they were all full-blooded Anglo-Saxons born on the island and well familiar with the ways of the English court. Something truly catastrophic would have to happen in order for one of Emma's children to sit on the throne. So, while this marriage was a pretty good get for Duke Richard II, because it was further locking his family into that web of noble dynasties that ruled Europe, the fact was that it was still highly unlikely that any nephew of his would ever sit on the throne of England. But, with this marriage, and presumably with the closing of the Norman ports to the Viking fleets, England was at last safe from the Scandinavian threat. Then a couple months passed. The days got longer, the trees dropped their leaves, and England found herself in the chilly grip of November. The campaigning season was over. All hallows had passed, the harvest was complete, and now was the time for feasts 
for masses and for all the things that make the holiday season so pleasant. And the Chronicle tells us that in the midst of this, an informant came to the king with a warning. A warning of a Danish threat. And this was in spite of the arrangement with Duke Richard. And in spite of the English raids on Strathclyde and the Isle of Man, it turned out the Scandinavians were still a problem for the throne of England. And this time, the threat wasn't packed onto a fleet of Drakars. Instead, the threat was coming in the form of an assassination plot. The Danes were planning to kill not only the king, but the entire Witan. And then they would claim the kingdom for themselves. It was an explosive allegation, especially considering that there were a lot of Danes and Anglo-Danes who were living in England. And not just in the Dane law. Danes and those of Danish descent and culture had settled all throughout England over the years. So the idea that the Danish threat could come from within the kingdom wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Furthermore, assassinations weren't exactly unheard of in Europe, and it can't have escaped Athelred's notice that it had only been one year since the king's trusted Scandinavian mercenary, Palig, had betrayed his oaths and joined the raiders, causing tremendous destruction in the process. And that betrayal had came in spite of having received an incredible amount of wealth to secure his loyalty. All of these things must have rattled around in Athelred's mind as he heard about the plot against him. And as salt in the wound, I imagine that Athelred thought that this problem was well behind him. After all, he had just married Duke Richard's sister and set Strathclyde and the Isle of Man on fire, all in hopes of putting a lid on the Viking problem. So to discover that, now that the large-scale invasions had been handled, the Scandinavians were simply switching tactics and planning to assassinate him in the shadows instead, well, I can only imagine how enraged he must have been. And allegations like this demanded a response. But unfortunately for England, Athelred wasn't exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer. And with his mother dead, along with several of her allies the number of people who could check Athelred's worst impulses were few and far between. Now, a smarter king likely would have pressed the informant for more information and then sent spies to ferret out who was involved so they could be dealt with directly. But that would have been a proportional response targeting the specific individuals that were threatening his government. It's the kind of thing that his mother probably would have done. But Athelred wasn't his mother. Proportional responses really weren't Athelred's forte. I mean, this was the guy who ravaged his own kingdom because a bishop was mean to one of his friends. That's who we're dealing with here. And when stupid, impulsive people feel threatened, they tend to lash out in stupid and impulsive ways. So, rather than doing some counter-espionage, Athelred decided to do something far more drastic. He was going to commit genocide. The Chronicle tells us that Athelred decreed that on St. Bryce's Day, November 13th of 1002, all the Danish men in England were to be killed. And you might be wondering, why St. Bryce's Day? Well, St. Bryce is actually an interesting figure. He began his life as an orphan and ended up getting raised in a monastery. But rather than being a contemplative monk, it turned out he was really tempestuous and power-hungry. 
and his behavior was so intense that, in one tale, his fellow monks tried to get him kicked out. And the bishop said that if Christ could come to terms with Judas, then surely they could all come to terms with Bryce. And when someone's comparing you to Judas, you know you're a handful. Now, eventually, Bryce became a bishop. And from that position, he got accused of obsessing over acquiring secular power and engaging in worldly pleasures. What worldly pleasures, you ask? Well, one example is that a nun ended up getting pregnant, and he was accused of being the father. Those kinds of pleasures. The King Athelbald kind of pleasures. Now, he denied it, of course, which the people of his bishopric totally didn't believe, and they threatened to stone him to death. So, not wanting to die a brutal death, he fled to Rome. And this is going to shock you. When the Pope heard about the sex scandal, he sided with Bishop Bryce and assumed that all his accusers were liars. Eventually, after seven years, he returned to France and reclaimed his bishopric. And he served there for another seven years before dying. So, you know, that's St. Bryce. So... Was there some hidden message that Athelred was sending by using this saint's day to slaughter all the Danes? Probably not. Looking at the decrees, Athelred seems to have just grabbed the most recent upcoming event, and then I suppose everyone marked their calendars accordingly. And we actually have several accounts of this order. The first is found in St. Frideswitta's charter, and it lays out Athelred's order to exterminate the Danes in a rather matter-of-fact way and basically goes on to express that this was all natural and godly. And that's notable, because this charter was written during the reign of Athelred, and it purports to actually be his own words. So here we have Athelred himself admitting that he issued the order, and apparently felt totally justified in doing so. Yikes. We also have entries in the Chronicle that reflect that order. However, those entries weren't written until after Athelred was long dead, when the scribes were writing for a rival dynasty. And in those entries, they seem to accuse the king of operating under a crazed paranoia, which does seem like it's likely. But, given the circumstances that they were written in, we can't know for sure whether the choice of framing was purely political, or whether it reflected a common viewpoint of Athelred's character. But regardless... In contemporary accounts, including records written for Athelred himself, all agree that the king's response to a rumored assassination plot was to order the extermination of all the Danes in England. Now, in addition to being disproportionate as a strategy, not to mention morally repugnant, it was also just actively stupid. Athelred lacked the practical and military capability to carry out a full-scale genocide throughout the majority of his kingdom. I mean, York, one of the largest towns in the north, was Danish. So was Lincoln. Nearly half of his kingdom was only recently under the Dane law and were broadly culturally Anglo-Danish. So did Athelred just expect them to hear his order and then set about slaying themselves? I mean, this was a command that at the bare minimum wouldn't be followed by about half of England. But it sure would piss them off. Furthermore, people of Danish descent were a large portion of the population by this point in England's history, and they lived all throughout the kingdom. And since this was a secret plan to kill them all by surprise on a specific day, 
this plan was probably something only known to specific nobles, officers, and some military figures. And we can only assume that the English nobility were just hoping that the Anglo-Saxon peasantry would join in in the slaughter en masse once the plan got underway. And unfortunately, we don't have cultural records that would indicate what your average Englishman actually thought of his Danish neighbors during this period. So we'll likely never know what the average person thought of this order, or whether they would have been participants in executing it. But we do know that on November 13th of 1002, on St. Bryce's Day, there were killings. And in St. Fritz's Widow's Charter, which was written in the presence of Athelred himself, we get a glimpse into the massacre. Quote, For it is fully agreed that to all dwelling in this country, it will be well known that, since a decree was sent out by me with the counsel of my leading men and magnates, to the effect that all the Danes who had sprung up on this island, sprouting like cockle among the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination. And this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death, those Danes who dwelt in the aforementioned town, striving to escape death, entered this sanctuary of Christ, having broken by force the doors and bolts, and resolved to make a refuge and defense of themselves therein against the people of the town and suburbs. But when all the people in pursuit strove, forced by necessity to drive them out, and could not, they set fire to the planks and burnt as it seems, this church with its ornaments and its books. Afterwards, with God's aid, it was renewed by me and my subjects, end quote. Now, I know that these charters aren't exactly page turners, but did he catch what was said there? So Athelred was saying that he did, in fact, order the extermination of all the Danes in England, and he characterized it as a just action and described the Danes not as people, but instead as an infestation. They were cockle who had sprung up, basically weeds that no one wanted and were of no use. In fact, they were getting in the way of the wheat, which was supposed to be there. And then he goes on to point out that the extermination wasn't only just, it was actually forced upon the English by necessity. So the Danes weren't victims here. Instead, the English were the victims. And then, when he describes how the people of Oxford carried out his order, we learn that it wasn't just his officers, but instead, quote, the people of the town and suburbs, end quote, were the ones persecuting their Danish neighbors. And realizing what was happening, the Danes fled to the church of St. Fritiswitta, hoping to gain sanctuary. And when the English townfolk couldn't break inside the church to kill them, they decided to just burn it down. And if you're listening closely, you might have caught that that was the real crime here. Yeah, in Athelred's charter, the fact that the church had to be burned down because the Danes were too rude to come out and be slaughtered was the real tragedy. And keep in mind that this is just what Athelred decided to put in a real estate document. I can only imagine the kinds of things that his court said when they were sat around a hearth fire. Now, as awful as all this sounds, we have also learned to be very careful with our sources. We've learned time and time again that just because a document is old doesn't mean that it's telling the truth. And so when we find a document talking about a single event, we always have to ask, did this really happen? Well, unfortunately, in the event of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, it looks like it did. In Oxford, 
at St. John's College specifically, which would have been near the St. Fritz Wittes Church, we find a mass grave. And inside were the skeletons of about 35 men, all of them in their 20s and 30s. And they date back to right at around this point in history. These men carried injuries that indicate that they died violent deaths. Specifically, almost all of them have injuries that indicate they were attacked from behind or while laying down, which means that they were injured and likely killed while running away or were captured and executed from behind. And if this was the same event, we can assume whoever escaped this execution had fled to the church and were burned to death. And this massacre wasn't isolated to Oxford. At Ridgeway Hill in Dorset, a mass grave was found containing 54 men. Many of these bodies also reflected damage from multiple wounds, and most of them were decapitated. And as for what was happening across the rest of the country, well, William of Jumiege says that all of the Danes of England were slaughtered. The men, the women, the children. However, here's where we really do need to be careful about our source. Because William wasn't actually present for these events. He couldn't have been. He was either not born yet, or he was still an infant in France at this point. Further, there are no eyewitness or contemporary accounts stating a complete genocide across the entirety of England was carried out. And as we talked about earlier, the idea that the Dane law would have participated in this is highly unlikely. Finally, William claimed that the survivors of the genocide brought word of the slaughter to King Swain. And so, if all the Danes were killed, I'm not sure how that worked. But most importantly for historians, the mass graves that we've found that seem to be attached to this event thus far have only contained men. And while adding women and children to the story certainly sensationalizes the event, and it definitely makes the House of Wessex, who William wasn't writing for, look terrible, well, the material evidence doesn't support that part of the story. At least not what we've found so far. Now, Henry of Huntington, who was writing in the mid-12th century, claims that only men were targeted for the massacre, not the women or the children. And that does match the archaeology. However, he also claims that this information came from talking with people who were alive during the massacre. And there's a problem with that. See, Henry wasn't born until about 86 years after the massacre. So even if he found a witness who had lived till they were 100, that means that if the witness was able to form clear memories of the event, they must have been at least five years old when it happened. Which would mean, at best, Henry of Huntingdon was interviewing people about mass murder when he was nine years old. And sure, nine-year-olds are known for having strange hobbies, but that one seems like a bit of a stretch. Especially since Henry didn't publish his first history until he was about 40 himself. But... The fact is that regardless of where his information came from, he might have been right and it might have been only the men who were targeted. Scholars have argued that Athelred's massacre was intended to target new arrivals rather than the Danes who have been living in England for generations. And the thought is that this order was targeting specifically the remnants of the Viking mercenaries and their companions who had joined Athelred's service starting in 994. It's thought that during that period, the Scandinavians were being hired on to garrison important towns, and that it was those mercenaries who were the people singled out for execution, rather than just Danes in general. 
Though, if that is the case, I'm not sure how to take Athelred's language about how the Danes sprung up in the country. Because that sounds very much like he's talking about Danish settlers and their offspring. At least, that's who I think about when I think about a community who's sprung up. I certainly don't think about mercenaries who were hired for a term of service. Furthermore, once the order to commit mass murder went out, the cat was kind of out of the bag. This was mob violence, so who knows what happened once things started rolling. But when we do find signs of truly organized violence, like the mass graves, the killing does appear to have been limited, and it wasn't a complete extermination of all the Danes. For example, Oxford was recorded as being part of the slaughter, going so far as to even burn down one of their own churches in the execution of the plot. And we do have a mass grave that seems to support what happened there. However, four years later, there's a charter granting lands to someone named Toady the Dane. And that grant didn't just come from anyone. It was the king who gave Toady the Dane some lands. And then he gave him more land five years after that. And that tells us two things. One, obviously, there were some Danes who were living there after the massacre. But two, for Athelred, this purge was less likely to be ideologically motivated on anything approaching our modern ideas of racial animosity. Rather, this appears to have been exactly what you'd expect from Athelred. The efforts of a weak, capricious ruler trying to show strength by lashing out with state-sponsored violence. And this likely wasn't as popular a move as Athelred had hoped. Henry of Huntingdon, writing years later, castigates the foolishness inherent in this strategy. He points out that the massacre had enraged the Danes, quote, like a fire which someone tried to extinguish with fat, end quote. As in, it was literally the worst thing you could do. And there's a second story that's attached to the St. Bryce's Day massacre that, if true, suggests that Athelred had, in fact, made one of the stupidest moves in British history. If you remember back to when the double-dealing mercenary Palag had come into Athelred's service, you might recall that Palag came to England with his wife, Gunhild, and she was the sister of King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Norway. And scholars debate whether or not she really existed. Her story isn't without controversy. Pretty much nothing out of Scandinavia is. But if she existed, well, according to the story, at this point, she was a hostage of the crown following her husband's betrayal. And the tradition tells us that on St. Bryce's Day of 1002, Gunhild, sister of King Swain Forkbeard, was one of the people who was killed on orders of the king. And that wouldn't be the sort of thing that King Swain could just let slide. But regardless of whether or not Gunhild was included amongst the dead, when stories of the massacre of the Danes in England came to his shores, well, as the most powerful king in Scandinavia, the people inevitably looked to King Swain Forkbeard for a response. And he had one. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we've got plenty of communities. We've got members stuff. We've got all kinds of stuff over at our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. You should check it out. Thanks for listening.